Gemma, what's on your hat? This is the Sonics logo. The team that doesn't exist anymore? Yeah, huh. but the it's all it's all blacked out except for the Space Needle. You are just like re- like just looking through relics of your time. It's like nostalgia. You know there's nothing worse than millennial nostalgia, right? This is not this is activism. Activism This is activism now? Yes. Bringing yeah. back the Sonics? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's a big it's a big thing. It's my next job. <laughs> Great. You after I after I secure US Iran peace, um I'm going to go bring the songs back okay I'm, I'm down well welcome back to the nyack podcast everybody we've lovingly dubbed it nyack cast uh, as always i'm mona mostatabi the communications director and i'm here with jamal abdi our president hey jamal hello 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 so jamal we've been talking about coronavirus a lot but there's a lot of other issues facing our community these days that also deserve some attention. Uh, and one of these is, you know, some of our community members being detained by ICE, which is maybe something new and something we haven't confronted in the past. So I was wondering if you could, you know, just tell us a little bit about that, since that's what the show is going to be focusing on today. And we'll be talking with a OFAC sanctions compliance slash immigration lawyer later in the show. So, you know, a little bit of context before we go into that would be great. So take it away. Yeah. Uh, well, so today's episode, you know, I had a chance to listen to your interview with Mernoush Yazdanyar, um, this attorney who is actually working with an Iranian who is detained uh, in an ICE facility. Uh, he's detained even though he has committed no crime. Uh, he, his children are American. He's somebody who could be probably lending a hand fighting on the front lines of the coronavirus crisis. And instead he's behind bars. And I just, I really, I think this is an interesting episode because it gets to the heart of kind of the Iranian American political experience right now. Uh, and this intersection of geopolitics and tensions with Iran and then immigration policies uh, and the role of um, the U.S. government and agencies like ICE here at home uh, and then the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, And so I I just I I think it's a fascinating uh, conversation. Uh, This is a this person who's detained, Dr. Sirus Askari, uh, is being held extrajudicially. and he's sounding the alarm on the fact that you know he himself could be at risk of containing coronavirus, but he's also advocating on behalf of his fellow detainees. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's it's sad, it's it's scary what ICE is doing uh, in our country. And I actually, you know, I continue to be shocked when I hear about the amount of power that ICE has. That is sort of outside of the bounds of, you know, the checks and balances and the the Constitution. Um, and so we break that down. And Marinouche, uh, who, who you guys talked to, she is working with Dr. Asghari and his family, but also worked with a uh, Iranian held in the United States who was traded for an American last December. And so underlying this whole conversation is this prospect that Dr. Asghari, you know, and this is just pure speculation on my part, but maybe being held in part as potentially somebody who could be traded for one of the Americans who are being unjustly held inside of Iran. And so it even raises the prospect that 
you know, we in the U.S. are now reducing ourselves to holding hostages and trading them the same way we criticize the Iranian government uh, for doing. Um, so anyway, so really interesting conversation. I'm not going <laughs> to uh, yammer on too much more, but I hope people enjoy, and we'd really love to hear from from uh, folks who are listening. And so, Mana, um, if you want to share how people can get in touch with us and ask questions. Well, uh, first things first, we want to hear from all of you guys. Uh, so if you guys have questions for any of the NIAC stuff, any comments you want to share, feel free to email us at podcast at niacouncil.org, and we will be answering some of your questions, hopefully, on the next episode. And you can get in touch with us on all the social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram. I don't think we're on TikTok yet, but if this thing goes any further, um, we may all be putting our pets and children on TikTok. So watch out for that. Not going to lie. I'm I'm already on TikTok. I'm practicing dances on behalf no. of NIAC. Are you really? Yep. Oh, okay, I where, am. Can, where, where can people find you? Uh, no, I am not giving out my TikTok name. You guys can follow <laughs> me on Twitter, but that's about where it starts and ends. Okay. But yeah, NIAC so, TikTok in the works. All right, let's do it. Uh, and then on Instagram, we have a series right now of uh, local uh, Iranian and Iran-adjacent uh, restaurants and businesses that we're featuring. Mm-hmm. Is that? Yeah. So, you know, in this time, our community owns lots of restaurants, supermarkets, and a lot of them are closed, obviously, but still doing, you know, curbside delivery and takeout. So this is a great time to really show up for our, you know, our business owners and give them some business where we can. I know I just got my stimulus check, so I'll be uh, spending some of that money at Moby Dick here in DC today. So uh, with that said, we're going to get into the interview and I hope you guys all enjoy it. And of course, if you have any questions for any of us or you want, you know, you've got topics you want to hear us talk about, remember, go ahead and email podcast at niacouncil.org. Welcome, guys. We are here today with NIAC's Dr. S.L. Rad. Uh, and uh, lawyer Mehnush Yazdanyar, is that right? Yazdanyar, yes. Uh, who's the owner of Yazdanyar Law. And uh, she focuses on OFAC sanctions compliance and immigration work. So welcome, both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, Mirish, maybe you can take tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you're doing and maybe a little bit about your law office as well. Sure. Um, I am... I've been an attorney. I've been an attorney since, uh, wow, 2004. It's a long time. I was going to do the math, but math has never been my strong suit. So I was like, carry the one minus the two, whatever. Um, and, uh, yeah, I have my own, uh, practice and we have three offices throughout Southern California. Um, but we focus mainly on sanctions law. Um, so really assisting the Iranian American community navigate, you know, uh, these very, very ambiguous regulations, because a lot of people don't realize that while the sanctions primarily are supposed to be aimed at limiting commercial activities with Iran, they have a very real impact on the millions of um, Iranians living in the United States or traveling back and forth because they regulate everything commercial and other. 
So we do that. Um, we also do um, a lot of immigration law. And again, with uh, especially in this past administration, both of these regulations, um, both immigration and uh, OFAC regulations have constantly been changing, um, either on the Iran side, or on the U.S. side, or both. So we're kind of uh, trying to help everybody, you know, navigate those changes and make sure that they don't do anything illegally, make sure everything's in order um, whenever they have any dealings with Iran. All right. That makes sense. Uh, well, that, you know, kind of segues into why we really wanted to have you on today, which was to talk about uh, an interesting case that's been in the news. Um, Dr. Sirus Askari, mm-hmm. Askari, who is a um, Iranian scientist that was acquitted late last year on sanctions related charges. But since being exonerated, uh, ICE has kept him indefinitely detained. Askari has, you know, deep ties to the U.S. I know he, he did his Ph.D. at Drexel. He had two of his kids live here. Um, and, you know, he did a Guardian interview that Mehnush, you were in, mm-hmm. and it was fantastically done. Um, and he was sort of explaining his time uh, in detention, and he expressed, expressed a lot of his fears. Um, you know, I think he mentioned that there's, like, a limit on, you know, access to soap and hand sanitizer. They don't have masks. Uh, he had a really poignant quote in there that, well, I'll get to later. Um, actually, we can just say it now. Um, Dr. Ascari said, the way ICE looks at these people, um, referring to everyone detained, is not like they are human beings, but they are objects to get rid of. The way they have been treating us is absolutely terrifying. I don't think many people in the U.S. know what is happening inside this black box. And so that's sort of the gist of the case. But I'm wondering, Mehnush, if you can just kind of walk us through it a little in a little bit more detail. Uh, I think a lot of people are really interested in this case. And I think, you know, hearing from you, firsthand source and your relation to the case would be great. Right. So I think this case has been very difficult for um, a lot of people to digest, um, no matter where they're from, but especially Americans, um, because it really, you're looking at an innocent man who's being detained behind bars for no reason. And that that question that everybody seemed to say is, I can't believe, is this really happening here? I can't believe that this is happening here. Um, and I have to admit, even as an attorney who practices, um, I was shocked at this um, this level of the injustice that I'm seeing on so, that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense if you're an American and you're looking at the system and you're saying, okay, especially now, you know, with all we're, we're all deeply in need of funding for a lot of different things. Our country needs to use its money in a very smart way to help people get back on their feet after this pandemic. Why are we paying for innocent people to be detained? Why are we keeping people behind bars who are saying, I will self-deport, I will leave this country? Um, that's not just true for Dr. Askady, but and I'll get into exactly what's evolved in these last uh, two, three weeks. But in my conversations with him, I've actually had conversations with other detainees as well. And one of the detainees literally said, I came here seeking asylum and I'm willing to let that case go and throw it out and go home. So imagine how horrible the conditions in these detention facilities must be that someone who feared for their life who applied for asylum to come to the United States is saying, I'll take my chances. My family will gather money. I will pay for myself to get deported. Why are they still behind bars? And and, that, and that's a big question. And so the first thing I always want to do is, you know, it's very black and white in this case. There isn't really a lot of gray area for people to be like, well, you know, maybe he did something or maybe, no, maybe something was wrong or de- it doesn't really matter what side of the political spectrum you fall on. It doesn't really matter what your 
you know, beliefs are, your background. If, if you are American and you're looking at the facts of this case, a federal judge acquitted him. And it wasn't sanctions violations. It was basically related to um, Dr. Asker. I obtained his PhD in the United States and traveled back and forth a couple of times. It did some very limited work with a university in the United States. And that work is what they charged him with, basically uh, attempting to export trade secrets. Um, but it was so baseless that it was acquitted. I mean, the judge threw it out. So um, that's that's basically he committed no crime. And a federal judge in the United States of America determined that. And it was an acquittal, meaning like the case was completely thrown out. There was nothing negative remaining. And the reasons for it, and these are all public documents that I welcome anyone to read, is because there's absolutely no evidence that would justify his arrest and bringing these charges. Um, but what's particularly problematic in this case, um, and I, as, as is the other ca cases that involve immigrants that have come here with a visa, is that, you know, Dr. Asghetti came here on a valid tourist visa. So he was issued a visa. He didn't run across the border. He didn't come on illegally. He was given a document that allowed him to travel to American soil. Now, what often happens in cases like this is that the U.S. government views a visa that they give as, a, as a, it's, it's a privilege that we're giving to you, and it's something we can revoke at any time, and we can do that whenever we want. So there was a seal indictment um, for Dr. Asghetti. So when he got on that plane with his wife to come here and to meet his son-in-law and to be with his family who resides here in the United States, unbeknownst to him, they revoked his visa. So when he lands, he no longer is a U.S. person with a valid document to enter. So they do what they call paroled him in, and his visa is never properly stamped. So it's as if he's not here, but they bring him here to basically try him. And this is where it gets complicated because now you're not just dealing with, you know, uh, the federal uh, court system and this case that's being brought about, brought against him by a prosecutor. You also have the immigration issue and your Department of Homeland Security issue. So on the one hand, he is being paroled in and arrested and being held to go to court. In his case, they were able to secure bail for him. But the problem is the minute the federal government gives him bail, because he's technically out of status, because the United States government revoked his visa, then that means that ICE can arrest him because he is without status in the in the government, and Trump has been enforcing this. So he actually was arrested for a short period of time when he got bail, but then because the federal government had an interest in trying him and within the federal court system, they managed to basically coordinate a deal with ICE that he was on supervised release. He got bail while his trial was pending, which took two years because every time he had a win, the government would appeal it. And what's very interesting in that case is that he was actually represented by public defenders because obviously he couldn't afford to pay the legal fees that would be here. Um, so that's what went on. In November of 2019, uh, what happened is that his he was acquitted. His case was thrown out. So that day, when he describes this, it, it literally makes my, the I, I get goosebumps and not in a positive way, just I, I feel sick to my stomach, is the same day that he's exonerated, that a federal judge basically says, why did you bring this case? You have absolutely no evidence. I'm throwing it out, okay? That same day, ICE comes in and arrests him. Like his own public defender attorneys didn't even know that that's happening. And I think that it's at this point that every American needs to ask themselves, why are we paying 
to put a man who our own justice system has determined to be innocent, okay? Because last time I checked, we still live in a society that we are innocent until proven guilty. The government was not able to prove anything. They weren't even able to actually get to a full trial because it was so bad. They filed a motion and had everything dropped. So how come that same day he's arrested? Now, this was in November, and his daughter... um, text messaged me that, you know, my dad was acquitted, but he was arrested by ICE. And I, what I thought, because I'm still naive, despite I've been, <laughs> the number of years I've been doing this, is that it's going to be the same type of just like an administrative, okay, couple days while he, because he was voluntarily wants to deport himself. He hasn't seen his wife for two years. He wants to go back to Iran. His family had the resources to help him do that. So it's just a matter of getting him on an airplane and having him go. I didn't hear back from them. And then this, I get a, basically a text message from his daughter, um, it was three weeks ago, uh, saying, hey, my dad is still in this ICE detention facility, but now he's freaking out because they're moving him around and this whole outbreak is happening and they are doing zero in terms of uh, preventative measures, social distancing, sanitation, masks, um, None of that. None of the stuff that we we were told to do on the outside, um, which I would have. That, that's when I just was very shocking that this was happening. That no one was aware that it was happening. That this innocent man has now been behind bars. At that time, it was four months, and um, and and for what? You know, he's never gone before an immigration judge. He's never ever been tried. And I mean, I don't, I don't understand it. How is this even possible? And um, and that's when I got involved. And I'm just. Uh, pro bono capacity and just helping him and his family, because I think this is just, it is unbelievable that this is happening here. Um, but it's, it, it, I think any time in any system that you have an innocent man behind bars, if you truly love your country and you truly love what your country stands for, and you're proud of that, it is on you to take a step back and ask, then how is this happening here? Um, why is this happening here? And until you get answers to those questions, I think you need to st- keep asking. You know, I, I think the last point that you made is so, um, is something that we often try to iterate because, uh, so often when you talk about foreign policy issues, issues that involve the citizens of other countries or the policies of other countries, we get stuck in a debate where we're talking about other countries. Whereas as Americans, our focus should always be on the United States, because that's mm-hmm. where we actually have a voice. That's where we actually, first of all, to your point, and I think you made this earlier, is you know we believe in a justice system. We believe that we have a democracy. We believe that our voices are powerful and carry weight, and that is something that should distinguish us from many other countries in the world that don't have those same privileges and rights. And so it is very important that we make sure our voices are heard here. One of the questions I wanted to ask you was, since you're you know describing this case, is how how you became familiar with this case. How is it that you sort of um, got, like, how did the family reach out to you? So in my career, um, I don't get involved in criminal cases. I just don't have the capacity for it. Um, I've always been told I would be very good at it and it would be very lucrative for me. But I said, whatever I make, I'd have to spend to, to basically for, on therapy and ways of living because I can't handle it. Like clients are not clients for me. They're, they're more than that. And in my career, this is the third criminal case um, outside of just like obviously I've like served as experts and whatnot, but that I get involved in. The second one was Dr. Soleimani's case, um, that, um, I'm, uh, he's basically now known for as 
the individual who was used um, in the prisoner exchange um, with Iran. But uh, something very similar happened to him. His charges were sanctions related. So background is that Dr. Soleimani is one of the most prominent stem cell researchers in the world. I mean, he has had so much success in developing um, basically uh, medical medicine that really, really assists cancer patients, patients um, with like liver degeneration issues. They, I mean, he, he's unreal and I can't do it justice, even though I tried my best to understand all, all that he's done, but he literally, all of the work that he's done helps patients that are suffering terminally ill patients um, across the world. And it's not just limited to people in Iran. And in one of um, these trips that his former students would go back and forth, one of his students asked him if there was anything that she could bring from here. And uh, he asked if she could bring, I think it was like eight vials of recombinant DNA proteins, right? Which is something that is legal in Iran. It's legal in the United States. It can only be used for research purposes. Um, and, And this is something that the government attested to that there was absolutely like literally the example they used would be if it would be like you were accusing somebody of using salt and pepper to make a bomb. Like that's how harmless these items are. They have a shelf life of uh, six months and they're literally less than what was seized from um, the student that was trying to take that for him was less than $8,000 worth of items. I'm just to put it in perspective. And the only reason that he asked was because everything is so much more expensive in Iran and they have obviously specific grants that they can use. So whatever he saves on this, he can purchase other research materials that again, for cancer research, for whatever. So he was asked uh, by the Mayo Clinic here in the United States, which was one of which is the the best hospitals here, if he would come and finish the final phase of one of these research um, projects that he was working on here so that it could develop it together. And I think it was some sort of cure for stroke patients. Um, So he got a visa and same thing happened to happen to Dr. Asghetti. Valid visa was revoked midair. So how I got involved in that case is his sister-in-law called me. He's like, I can't find him. I don't know where he is. He was arrested. We don't know why. We don't know where he is. We don't know what's happening. Um, and that's how I got involved in that case. Now, when I was got involved in Dr. Soleimani's case, and that was another one of those cases where I'm like, why, why is he in jail? Like why prison? Why is this man in prison? This is an academic. He is a professor at a prominent university in Iran. He has absolutely no record of any type of wrongdoing. He is a scientist. And this stigma that goes with these researchers, these individuals who are basically responsible for developing all of these, who who are we depending on right now amidst this pandemic to find a solution, to find a vaccine? It's these scientists, it's these researchers why are we putting these brilliant minds in prison? What purpose does it serve? Are they a danger to society? Is he violent? Is he a flight risk? Is Dr. Askey right now, is he violent? Is he a flight risk? What reason do we have to justify taking a man's liberty? And that's where, to, to um, Dr. Rad's point, that's where you need to take a step back and say, this is America. We still value life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness above all else. So if we are saying our government is going to take someone's liberty away, and it doesn't matter if that person is a citizen, a legal permanent resident, here on a visa, that person is a human being. And every human being has that right to freedom. And if we're taking it away, we better have a really great reason for it. 
And they didn't. They they basically manipulated the system in both of these cases, revoked these visas just so that they could take these men into custody and put them on trial. And that's when Dr. Asketty reached out to me um, because we were kind of um, going back and forth on the same issue of bail because in Dr. Soleimani's case, it was a federal judge at first denied bail just flat out denied bail. And then when we were, and he kept saying, well, even if I grant bail, you're, he's going to go into ICE custody. And if he's in ICE custody, we don't have the same access to him that we would if he's in a federal prison where we can go in every day because ICE, they will take him to wherever they want to keep him. Right. So that's how I got involved with Dr. Asgay's case. And then Dr. Asgay, um, I don't know if, uh, if you've read his interviews, or if you've uh, heard the live interview we did with him from inside the detention facility, he is just an incredibly inspiring person. I mean, this man who has been put through hell still is so positive and still is basically looking for that silver lining. And literally in the middle of that interview, he said, I, I, I'm, I'm shocked that I'm being detained in the United States of America. I, I'm, I'm just shocked that I've been shackled and I've been amidst this virus, this, this pandemic. They've had so little regard for containing it and, and not understanding that they're risking their own citizens. But I'm grateful that I was in a system where I was arrested, but a federal judge looked at me and, and didn't look at me as an Iranian, looked at me as a human being within his justice system and acquitted me. And that your system gave me a federal public defender that fought for me because he saw that I was innocent and they did that. And I'm grateful that I can call you up and have my story be told where thousands of people can hear me because that's the freedom of speech, that's the freedom of press that I wish that 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 I'm, I'm grateful for, you know? So... This case, in my opinion, is it's so it is indicative of the problems we have in within our systems. And he is someone that's helping us see those without attacking it and being appreciative for all the things that we have that are positive, that works, and that's good. So around the long way of answering your question is it was when I was working on Dr. Soleimani's case. And with Dr. Soleimani, what ended up happening is that the government obviously saw he wasn't dangerous, not that he didn't do anything wrong. Um, there was a big question because under the current sanctions, there is an exception for medicine and medical devices to be sent to Iran. And there was an argument to be made that this recombinant DNA falls within that category. And if it doesn't, the rule of leniency means everything should be construed in the favor that are most favorable to whoever's being prosecuted. Um, but it didn't get to there because the governments chose to use their prisoners and negotiate and, and do that. But what I know is just like Iran would have never let go of someone that they truly believed was a danger, neither would the United States. I mean, obviously both governments were detaining men that they believed were not really dangerous and did not do anything against their own interests. I mean, the interests of their respective countries. So he actually had all the charges dropped and he was sent back, uh, to Iran. Um, and, uh, and Dr. Afghan and I were in contact the whole time. So that's how I came to know him. And I kind of, from afar, would put, give input to his case. But he wanted to, even though he was dealing with his own stuff, he wanted to help. He was like, will this help? He put us in touch with um, his public, uh, federal public defenders because we didn't know how hard we should push on bail, which now looking and seeing he's been detained for five months, it's probably best that we weren't able to get bail for him, you know, because he would have been in, could have been an ice uh, hold this whole time. You know, it's 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 very powerful that Dr. Asghari has such faith in our system 
in the U.S. system. Um, and here's the, you know, it, 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 but it's it's devastating in a way that what we expect of other countries is not the standard that we apparently want to apply here in the United States. We're so here's the prerequisite. Yeah, you know, Iran has bad actors, all of that. Yes, Iran has, you know, jails full of political prisoners that everyone is calling to be released in, you know, so that they aren't exposed to coronavirus. Yet we're seeing these exact problems here. Mm-hmm. Maybe we don't call them political prisoners, but we're still seeing the exact same risks. And it's just fascinating that these calls don't resonate at home. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I, I'm saying, I, and I'm ashamed to admit it, but I think I was guilty of the same where I don't, I don't know if it's being naive or just assuming that certain things are for sure, this is how our system operates. Um, but but I think that's absolutely right. And and I think that's why I'm so vocal about it is I'm I'm very proud to be an American and I'm a proud I'm proud to be a part of this system. Um, but I think real strength comes from individuals who are able to look at what belongs to them and absolutely embrace the positives, but see where something isn't working and work to make that better. And what what I can't get over is why why are innocent people being detained? And in this particular case with Dr. Asghari, really, like there is just really no good reason. And the only the only thing would be, you know, and and this is something that we got a lot after these interviews is like, well, these these are is it because these facilities are owned by like semi private companies or private and public companies? Is it a financial issue? Is it this? Is it that? Or is this just like does ICE have free reign to do certain things? I mean, this idea of an what they call administrative detention. I mean, wh- we might hear that in passing and not really look at what does that mean. But let's delve into what does that mean. Detention is you're detaining somebody, you're putting them in prison. So you're putting someone in prison, you're taking away their life and liberty. Your reason for it is an administrative one. Is it is it because it's easier for you? You want to have access to this person that you want to deport. So I'm just going to keep them here. When my plane is going to be full, I'm going to take them. Is that okay? Is that okay? Are we? Because if it is, then Americans need to embrace that. Then our country is isn't it? We're a country that we are okay with that, you know. And I think that that's what I push people to do. I'm not telling you what your belief system should be, but you have to take it for what it is. Okay. So you either have to look at something and say. Oh, this is this is as best as we can get it. Where yeah, innocent men are going to be behind bars and embrace that and own that that is what you are doing, or accept that there's a problem, and figure out how you're going to fix that problem, because he's not the only one. He's just the only one that had access to a lawyer who happened to care enough, who got all these other people involved, and now all these various organizations and individuals are looking at this problem, and because it is such a big problem, wanting to do something about it. So I think. I think that it's very important for us to take a step back as Americans and 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 say that because you know dealing with Iran US issues you know for now 10 years I always get that well Iran is worse Iran's this or that and I always say well you know I'm not arguing that but I'm an attorney living in the United States of America I've been living here almost I mean I've lived here all my life I haven't even been to Iran in 20 years who am I to to say that whatever anything about their system and I'm not I'm not of course I think anywhere in this world, anyone who is unfairly deprived of their liberty is abused, who is arrested or behind bars, any innocent person, any innocent person, that's that's atrocious. I'm going to focus where I live, my home, 
and try to make sure it doesn't happen here, especially because of what this country stands for. And if we truly stand for freedom, for democracy, then we need to make sure that that is shown, not just in the lip service we pay to these principles, but in actuality, in our practice, in the way we treat not just our own citizens and our own legal permanent residents, but every other human being that comes in, in these borders. Yeah, I think the uh, the point that you're making about you know, we hold certain principles and values. And so those are, uh, apply to everyone. Of course, it applies to the case of Iran. It applies to the case of every nation state. It's an, it's an international point of view. So, but the first place that we have the ability to, to carry out those principles is within our own countries where we are citizens, where we have, especially here, you have the right to vote, you have the right to advocate, you have the right to do these things. Um, what's disheartening is to see these types of cases and know something that I actually think is fascinating is it's not the will of the American people. And I always like to make that point. If you look at, you know, when we talk about countries, and this always happens when people talk about Iran too. People talk about Iran, who are you talking about? Are you talking about the Iranian people? Are you talking about an Iranian government? Certain factions within that government? We cannot paint everyone with the same brush. And it's the same case in the United States. When we talk about the U.S., does what the, what our current government uh, carries out reflect the will of the actual populace? It doesn't. And we can see that in, you know, if you present this case in front of average Americans, what average American would say, yes, I, I think this is a great allocation of our tax money to so keep innocent people, scientists of all people, uh, detained in facilities and, and not give them proper hygiene and, and not social distance and potentially create, you know, hotbeds of transmission of a deadly virus. So no, no, Americans don't agree with this notion. And it goes further than that. It even goes into our foreign policy, um, which is despite the fact that we have very many issues with the government in Iran because it is authoritarian, because it um, abuses its own people in many ways, what the question becomes is what is our role as the United States in helping those people? The people, right? Not the governments, but the people. And so, you know, I wanted to ask this question, and it's it's not exactly pertaining to to the cases that we've talked about, but given your expertise and your background, um, there is, you know, part of the reason why the Dr. Asghari's case has has gained as much traction as it has is because of the corona. Uh, the coronavirus pandemic, right? The idea that these prisoners, not just Dr. Ascati, but other ICE prisoners, they're still human beings. And we need to prevent transmission of this disease, especially on U.S. soil. So that this virus and this pandemic, I think, has framed almost every conversation we're having right now. And so within that, looking at you, who's a sanctions expert on Iran, there's a debate right now in terms of whether or not we should lift sanctions on Iran at least temporarily, mm -hmm. so that they can actually have a fighting chance against this pandemic. Um, the counter debate is, well, humanitarian aid and assistance has never been uh, sanctioned. And so there's no issue when it comes to you know, Iranians having those things. What do you see as someone who is privy to what's going on on the ground? So I think, it, I think that this pandemic highlights a lot of the pre-existing problems in the system to begin with. So my issue with sanctions has always been, um, regardless of whether or not you believe that there should or should not be sanctions, the sanctions as they are 
it, very problematic. They're written by people who don't understand how either international banking system works, how movement of funds work, how Iranian banking systems work um, at all. And so they, there is a lot of, again, I'm going to say lip service because that's basically what it is. There's, there's a lot of these, oh, there are exceptions. These sanctions are written to target the government of Iran, not the people of Iran, and certainly not U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents, which in theory is great. But I think that American people have to take a step back and not just listen to what they're being told, but look at something in practice, okay? So great. In theory, there are all these exceptions, humanitarian aid being one of them, food and being one of them, medicine and medical devices being one of them. But what happens when these exceptions are so vague or so unclear that you don't even know if you can use them or not in the case of Dr. Soleimani? I mean, there is no way that this intelligent, educated man would have risked his entire life, his freedom, his everything, his research projects, his patients' lives, because do you know how many patients he lost from the time that he was detained here? Over $6,000 worth of like recombinant DNA that he could have bought from inside of Iran. So it doesn't make sense. There's a problem. The regulations created an idea that this is legal, but in practice it wasn't. And it's the same thing with humanitarian aid. Yes, it is true. In the law, there are general licenses that permit nonprofit organizations in the United States to send aid and goods and services to Iran, provided that they fall within the framework of a general license um, that has a cap of $500,000 a year, that has certain reporting requirements, but for activities related to humanitarian aid, promotion of democracy, um, uh, natural disaster, rebuilding after natural disasters, um, and, um, and uh, there's some of... I think I said conservation of environment. I don't remember. But anyway, for this, then you're allowed to send these funds there. And in addition to that, you could apply for licenses if you want to engage in activities outside of the scope of that. The problem is, how do you send money to Iran when there is no direct relationship, banking relationship between Iran and the United States? How do you send goods to Iran when there is directly shipment of products is complicated. And then you have added to that, and these problems existed in the sanctions uh, law. It's not a, this isn't a Trump or anti-Trump debate. This is just, these were problems. They existed under like Clinton, who basically founded the majority of these sanctions. They were also very, very prominent under Obama. These problems have always been the case. It's not a political one. The difference is with coming up with this current administration, coming out of the nuclear deal and every day getting on the television and threatening everybody who does the slightest violation of anything against Iran, you're creating an element of fear in every single third country or every single bank, uh, third country banking system who would help send these funds to Iran because now no one wants to deal with it because no matter what you do, when you have absolutely cut off all relationship and ties between these two countries, how do you expect to carry out transparent um, uh, transactions, even if the core is good and the intent is good. And, and that's what the problem is. So we represent a number of nonprofit organizations and we actually got an OFAC license for one of the main uh, organizations who handles, uh, works with a lot of orphanages in Iran and does a lot of work for children and underprivileged children for, in Iran. And we were actually able to get OFAC within one week to up their license three times the amount that they originally had granted because they understand the dire need to help and send this aid to Iran. But we're having so many issues on the money transmittal side. We're, we're getting it done, but it's not easy because nobody wants to deal with it. Nobody wants, nobody wants to actually engage in these transactions. And that's something that the United States government has created. So, so 
This is a confidence issue. It's confidence. It's, it's how do you, how do you give exceptions without carving out a transparent way to carry them out? That's like me saying, Hey, you guys, yeah, you can, you can come get this cup and do whatever you want that you have my permission, but I don't give you a map. I don't tell you where it is. I don't tell you how to get there. I don't tell you, you know, it's like, well, that's great. So I think it's weakness to do that because all you're doing is you're, you're just kicking the can down the road. It's not my problem. We have exceptions. We have the exceptions. There's humanitarian aid exceptions. Okay. So I really want a member of this current administration to tell me if they were a nonprofit organization here and they wanted to send a hundred thousand dollars in aid to Iran, how would they do that in their own current way? I guarantee you, no one would be able to answer that question. And the flip side is true. They pay lip service to the fact that a U.S. citizen, if they have ties to Iran, they can bring family money here. They can sell properties that they've inherited and assets that they've inherited and bring it here. I want to ask one member of this current administration how they would do that. So here I am, an Iranian-American. I haven't been to Iran in 20 years. Let's say I have a piece of property or a house that I inherited or that was in my family from before. It's perfectly within my right to sell that and bring it here. How do I do that? How do I do that? How do I, how, show me how that's what the problem is. So if they are going to hang their hat on the fact that there are exceptions for humanitarian aid, they need to lay out a clear path that that aid can be sent to Iran. Otherwise it doesn't do any good to anybody to have those exceptions in the law. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, (laughs) I mean, it's, it's just, it's fascinating how it seems like all we're waiting for is additional guidance all the time. I, I ask them and I don't believe it's, um, like I said, it's, it, I, I don't want to attack anyone. I mean, I, I'm, I saw with my own, you know, from my own experience, how within one week, you know, OFAC pushed through this uh, request to have a license amended and issued it because they understood the need for it. You know, so I'm not, it's not at all like, this is a conspiracy. This is, isn't that, this is a, do you care? Is this a priority? Like we, and, and again, it's the other thing is like, okay, no, no, sanctions are supposed to meet this goal and the the sanctions are supposed to aim at putting pressure on the people, I mean, putting pressure on the government. It's like, how how are you proposing that they do that? Right now, like imagine we live here and we have all of these um, privileges, you know, and we still struggle in in dealing with this pandemic. What about a country whose people were torn, like they had nothing to begin with even before this happened? How can we say that we should continue to put that pressure on them in that same breath, say humanitarian concerns matter to us? And that's what I'm saying is you can't have it both. You have to own it and say, you know what? No, I'm going to say starve them and that's okay because that's what my goal is. And I'm going to own that. You can't say, no, no, no. It's just, I'm going to, it's there, but there's ways to help it. And then not, not being able to explain why. And I think we live in a time and this pandemic, I think, should open everyone's eyes, and these are just some examples of it, to really, really don't take lip service. Think about it. Look at the problem and ask yourself, if if these events are happening, then there is a problem in this system and how can we solve it? And at Dr. Askari's case, Dr. Soleimani's case, any Iranian-American who wants to engage in the most basic personal transaction with Iran exemplifies that there are problems. And these are problems that Americans are paying for because unlike most sanctioned countries, Iranians, Iranian Americans don't want to send much money back. I mean, for humanitarian aid is one thing, personal assets, everybody wants to bring them. My firm alone has assisted in the transfer of hundreds of millions of dollars legally that were brought here in one way or another pumped back in the U S economy. So for people who don't understand 
that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about, you know, random, like it's very, these are transactions that would ultimately be to the benefit of the United States and every American. Yeah. I think a couple of things that you said, one, um, that there are elements within even the American government, for instance, you know, OFAC tried to push it through because they saw that there was a need. Um, that's, that goes back to, you know, the other point that I was trying to make, which is we, we can't look at even our own government as some kind of monolithic entity. There are elements within it that, uh, have one agenda and there are other elements of people who are really, you know, they take their job seriously and, and they are trying to, to do their best. What becomes frustrating is when there are certain interests, uh, that politicize things, right? Like politicizing this pandemic. If we're still talking about sanctions relief and, um, and the pandemic, but then adding sanctions in the same breath, which our own secretary of state did just a few weeks ago, then there's something disingenuine about the messaging. And I think what's frustrating as, um, you know, Iranian Americans, but just as Americans who are trying to engage in any kind of discourse about what our own country is doing the way that it's framed is so often out. Like we spend so much time just trying to frame it correctly that we, we don't even get to talk about the import, the part that's important. Mm-hmm. It's like, I have to go through 10 caveats before I can just get to the point I'm trying to make. Because it's this posturing that's killing us. Right. Because I feel like we don't look at, this is, we are Americans period. And this is ours. This is ours. This country is ours. The way we spend our money, the way we help people, the way it's ours. So holding on to something just because it's yours or because it's your, you belong to this party or you just holding on to principles for the sake of holding on to them is no longer sufficient. You need to look at what it is that you are supporting and standing by. You know, you can be anti-immigration, but I think at the same time, like I, I would prefer to not have that very many immigrants come up, right? But does that person, does that mean that whatever ICE does and whatever our, um, uh, you know, the Department of Homeland Security does is okay? Is that really okay? Because you tell me, well, how is it to anyone's benefit to pay? I don't know how, how, I wonder how much we've spent imprisoning someone who wants to go back himself. He would have paid his ticket and gone back himself. We are keeping people. And, and this is what he kept saying. These are not dangerous people. This is not someone who's, oh my God, if he comes out, he's going to blow something up or he's going to do something illegal or he's going to engage in an illegal activity. No, a federal judge acquitted him. He's, he's, he has no blemishes of any sort on his record. You know what Dr. Soleimani's wife sent me uh, two weeks ago? Pictures of him back in the hospital helping patients recover from COVID. Like literally, that's where this man belongs. This is the same man that we kept behind bars for one year. I'm, I want someone in the government to tell me what benefit that had, right? What benefit that had that, I mean, that's what we paid for. And I think that's, this is just so important. And whoever is in a place of, uh, I don't want to say power, but can, has a voice that will be heard should scream at the top of their lungs to have people look at this because this is all of our responsibilities as Americans, you know, and, and, and it's okay for you to belong to one political party, but have, you know, criticisms of how we can be better. That's the only way we're going to get, you know, improve ourselves. But I think, you know, just the way that COVID is being handled in these detention facilities is very, very troubling because, we should be better as a country than this. I mean, when he's describing it, basically, 
These detention facilities are looking to deport all of these people. And they take them to one deportation hub, which was Alexandria, which is where he called me from to begin with. So imagine people are picked up from all over the United States from various facilities, brought over to this one hub. Again, no social distancing, same handcuffs are reused from person to person, sleeping in pods of like 70 people, bunk beds. He's saying that if if the beds are so close, if somebody coughs, there's there's no way for you not to have that. There were no masks, no hand sanitizers, nothing. Then they were all, twice this happened. He was moved to four different facilities in two weeks, right? Bring all these people out, put them on an airplane, take them to JFK where they were going to deport them, had the flights be canceled, had everybody come back again, and then sent back to their various facilities. And now we have seen, this is now week week three, and three different cases of COVID in the, in the facility that he's in right now. I mean, why is this happening? How, how do we then, then we're really no different from any of those other countries that don't have the infrastructure to handle this. And for those people who are that narrow-minded that they think, well, this is like, they're not going to affect Americans. I want to, most of these detention facilities are where Americans are kept short-term and long-term and the correction officers come in and out of it. And that's what's getting sent right back into our country. So I just want to know who's benefiting from this. Well, you spoke and you've said it a few times now uh, about better. We should expect better. We should be better. Um, And, you know, admittedly, as an Iranian American, I've been less familiar with ICE or Customs and Border Patrol. And a lot of these, I think the Muslim ban, you know, when Trump first came to office was one of the first sort of assaults on immigration that I saw that impacted the Iranian American community. And so my question now is, is now that this community, our community is being exposed to the horrors under ICE and seeing, you know, where American citizens or legal residents are being detained at the borders, you know, it's not enough for us to see through cases of people that are in our community. It seems like it's a time for us to step up and be not just better Iranian Americans, but better Americans. I mean, I think this is a time for us to show solidarity with the other, what, 30,000 detainees that ICE has. You know, I'm just really afraid that as we're exposed to this, our community can't just stop once members of our community are out. Something has to shift and something in our political engagement and sort of our civic mindedness really needs to be changing alongside the assault on our community. That's so true. And just to give you an idea of what an amazing, like an inspirational character Dr. Askett is. So yesterday I get a call and of course, when he calls, I freak out because I'm like, oh my God, something happened. He's like, you know, I was thinking, um, there's so many people here that really can't afford any kind of legal representation. There's not all these organizations are involved. What do you think about setting up a call where some of them can just get some basic guidance? And like, if these nonprofits would be willing to just provide some sort of like guidance to them. And I was like, oh my God, that's a great idea. You know, like, why not? You know, and, and it's, it's so true. And he has this now supporting of so many people from in there. Cause he's literally trying to help them all out. So he comes with saying questions. This is what happened to him. Now what's the quickest way he can get deported. And like, this is what, you know what I mean? So, and that's what he believes. He's like, you know, I have you guys, I have this community. These people don't have anyone you know, but their life is not any less important than mine. We got to help them. We got to help them. And, and that I think speaks so, um, speaks to your point, I think really illustrates what you're trying to say. And it's, it is so important. And that's what I always say, you know, I believe uh, my community is anyone I can help any human being I can help and any human being who can help me, that's a community. It doesn't, we're no longer going to limit that by our race and our, you know, ethnicity and our religion and our political viewpoints because that world doesn't work anymore. 
You know, it just doesn't work anymore and it shouldn't work anymore. And every human being is a human being beyond anything else, you know? So I, I hope that is my hope. I mean, and that's something I've become passionate about and with all of this happening, um, you know, it's just a, it's, it's a reminder of, for me, it's been a reminder of how, um, not in control we are, but how we can focus our energy on the things we can control. And I think for us looking at this system, it's an, it's not perfect, but ways we can, we can improve it, not just for our own Iranian American community, but for other individuals and creating that cohesiveness in every human being is what will make us stronger and able to endure anything else that comes our way. I think that's a really good, uh, point to end on. And I think the, the, the most important lesson we can take from this pandemic is exactly that, that every, the only way to combat it is through cooperation, whether it's local cooperation, staying at home, um, you know, supporting our medical staff or whether it's international cooperation, you know, international calls growing by the day for ceasefires everywhere for sanctions relief for every country, including Iran, not just Iran, right? Like that's to your point. We talk a lot about sanctions on Iran. Iran is not the only country being sanctioned and it's not the only country, you know, it's, it's the hardest hit that is being sanctioned, but we shouldn't wait till those other countries get hard hit before we do something. So I I think it really does create, it's a watershed in where we're going to go, what direction we're going to go in politically and how we use cooperation as a means of actually having effective policies on all of these fronts. Oh, no, absolutely. And I don't know, this is an opportunity for the world to kind of reset. I mean, this is not, no, we would have never done something like this to re- take time to reevaluate. It's forced. A, it makes you realize how just unimportant we are. We're just basically on this planet. We are as susceptible to things as every other animal is. And uh, it's good, good reminder that no matter how sophisticated we get, one virus can come and just change everything. So still mother nature is the boss of us. Um, <laughs> but also, yeah, there you can try as you might and like, you know, just define yourself as a country and define yourself as a people and do this and do that. Something like this happens and reminds you, we are a collective, we are humans first and we must behave as humans because when something like this happens, there is no, this uh, COVID-19 doesn't discriminate based on if you're the president, if you're the prime minister, if you're rich, if you're poor, if what your religion is, what anything is, no, you're a human and you're, you're, you're vulnerable and other humans can help you and other humans can protect you and we can support one another or we can injure one another. And and what I always say is I, when someone's on the receiving end of something, sometimes it's so easy for them to say like, well, we've heard a lot of people saying, well, we should go back to, we should go back to work. And you know, this can only really is going to hurt a certain number of people. And so what if some people die and that, but imagine if you were that person, that's like the vulnerable one, like, cause one day the tables are going to turn and it is going to be you. And I think seeing what's happening to some of the biggest businesses out there, it's like, we can all be vulnerable in a split second. You can wake up tomorrow and you don't know what the world you're going to live in. So you better give unconditionally that same level of humanity and understanding and empathy that you would want in return. I mean, I think uh, that is the most modern roomy I think I've ever heard. I mean, I mean, right. He talks about the community and the spirit and the collective. There's a reason it's inscribed on the UN building. Um, so I guess with that in mind and this, this, 
what, what can we do? What, how can people get involved? What's possible? And like, what's next for Dr. Askett? Right now, um, we have, uh, well, his, his legal team has applied for, um, submitted a petition for habeas corpus. A lot of nonprofit organizations, including NIAC, have issued, um, you know, letters that are attesting to this, asking ICE for his release. Um, there are petitions going around. Please sign that. Please go to his Facebook page, which is Free Doctor Askeri, because any type of movement will be will be sent out to that. Um, and also, if you can contact your local representatives, please do that. Please make them aware of what's going on, um, and stay tuned because it just really depends on how this week plays out. Because this is this is something that I think should just continue to get more pressure and attention to make to make something happen. There's a uh, change.org petition, I believe, that's yes. circulating. Uh, so we'll make sure to include that in the podcast event description so everybody can go oh, take perfect. action. Yes, absolutely. Mernoush, thank you. Thank you. you. Illuminating. <laughs> SL, thanks as always. And hopefully, you know, we can have you back on with some good news for you to share at some point. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.